This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Today is the Feast of Christ the King, the final Sunday of the church year, and the final sermon in our series on the Psalms, Prayers for Real Life. The Feast of Christ the King is the Sunday where we celebrate our King, Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended Lord, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, but is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. This Sunday, in essence, is the culmination of not just the entire church year, but we celebrate the culmination of all of God's saving work. We in the church year follow our Savior King through the entire course of our salvation in Him, through His birth, His life and teaching, His suffering and death, His resurrection and ascension, and then today we celebrate His eventual return in glory, His final coming to be crowned and truly acknowledged as King and Lord of all, by all. So today is a foretaste of the coming of Christ as King once and for all, where the Lamb who was slain assumes his rightful place as Lord of heaven and earth at the marriage supper of the Lamb. In effect, today is a little coronation ceremony <laughs> where we, in our praise and our adoration of, king, of him as King, coronate him before everyone else acknowledges him as well. Today is also the final sermon in our series on the Psalms, and our text for today is Psalm 149. It's there printed in your bulletin. You can follow along. I'm going to be following from the Book of Common Prayer version, which is printed there in your bulletin. It is a fitting, festive psalm, praising and honoring the king. One you could imagine that would have been sung by the children of Israel at the coronation of their king. Praise the Lord. O oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Let the congregation of the faithful praise him. Let Israel rejoice in the one who made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto him with timbrel and harp. Sing a new song. For the king has come and established his people Israel in their home and their birthplace, Zion or Jerusalem. And guess what? The people dance. It was customary at great festive occasions in the ancient Near East to celebrate with dance. And really, what a better psalm for a church like Rez, where we too sometimes dance, to finish up our series on the psalms with this particular psalm. In Psalm 149, verse 2, um, the reality there that they are portraying, the psalmist is portraying, is really picked up again in the book of Revelation, foreshadowing, foretelling that coming again of the king. In Revelation 14, the identity of Israel is embraced and honored there as the king, the lamb who was slain, celebrates with his people in Zion. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and Father's name written on their foreheads. 
They were playing harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had redeemed themselves from the earth. For in their mouth was found no lie, for they were blameless, having followed the Lamb. You see, the 144,000 sing this new song to the Lamb, not the false songs proclaimed by the beast and other false saviors parading across the stage through the first chapters of Revelation up to that point. These are the people who, as St. Augustine would eventually say about Psalm 149, sang songs of praises not just with their mouths, but with their very lives. So you see, Psalm 149 offers us a foretaste and a foreshadowing of the coming again of the king in his glory. And there is no better foretaste and foreshadowing image of that reality, I believe, than this image that our AV people will project up here, a rendering from, yes, Peter Jackson's rendition of the Lord of the Rings. See, we have a throne there, and I know you all know this because it's one of the things you have to pass. You have to pass the Tolkien proficiency exam to become a member here at Res, right? So for about the dozen of you who don't know what this is, I'll explain it to you briefly. But there is this king in Middle-earth named Aragorn who is the long-lost king of Gondor. His throne is, is cared for by a caretaker, there, Denethor, in the black throne at the base of the big white throne. But the white throne awaits the coming king, the real king. You see, that empty white throne signifies the reality of the not yet. But we are introduced to Aragorn and given hints of his royal identity throughout the story and know that the king is coming even though he is already here among us. That's Tolkien's great allegory about Christ the king through, through, told through this Christ figure of Aragorn. And we see two different realities played out in the, his kingly coronation that actually reflects very much the coronation here in Psalm 149. Namely, there is great joyous celebration of the king and his people at his coronation, but also fierce judgment upon the king's enemies. When Aragorn takes his throne and is eventually crowned Elisar, one of his many names, there is both great joy and judgment. Aragorn celebrates with his people and they rejoice in him, but his wrath is fearsome towards his enemies who have oppressed his people for far too long. In fact, the Lord of the Rings shows this brilliantly too, that before the king can ascend to his throne, he enters into two great battles to liberate the kingdom of Gondor and a final great battle to vanquish the evil Lord Sauron once and for all. So I share this with you not to meet some quota of Tolkien references in Red Sermons, but because it illustrates vividly, I think, these two realities before us today. Like Aragorn coming to claim the throne of Gondor, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is both here now and not yet. It is present, but yet to come in its fullness. Both our feast today and our text from the Psalms both celebrate present and future realities. The second reality, and more the focus of our sermon this morning, is what the coming of the king is like. 
You see, it is portrayed both in Psalm 149 and in the book of Revelation as a coming king of joy and of judgment. So we celebrate his kingdom, both now and not yet, and we recognize both joy and judgment of our present and coming king. A lot of boths here this morning. But that's what I think our scripture is telling us on this Christ the King Sunday. I want us then to examine why joy, why judgment? What is the source of true joy? What is the reason for the king's judgment? I think Psalm 49 gives us some answers to both of these questions. First, why joy? The coronation of a king can be a time of great joy and celebration if he is a popular, beloved king. If. Both then in the ancient Near East and now today, it is common enough of an occurrence for a great leader not to come with joyful celebration. Kings could forcibly take their thrones by might and not by popular will or affection. Today, it is much the same reality. Money can buy power and influence in elections, but not necessarily legitimacy in the hearts and minds of the people. It's not too difficult for unpopular kings or politicians, both then and now, to forcibly conscript rent-a-crowds even to celebrate their taking power, such as the military goose-stepping down the street of some military dictatorships. But our king is different. Psalm 149 makes this clear. Why is there great and real joy at his coming? Why is the call to praise here not a conscription, but a confession, something that in the people of God calls forth genuine joy and praise? I think verse 4 contains the key. For the Lord has pleasure in his people and gives victory to those who are oppressed. There are two reasons here. First, the king takes great pleasure, delight or joy in the people. And second, that's why he liberates them. His joy is the reason for his liberation. That is why the Father sent the Son to liberate us. You see, there is a growing body of psychological research around the whole notion of joy. Joy is, you might say, the jet fuel of the human soul. Joy is a sense of delight and enjoyment in life and of others. But it's not mere happiness or pleasure. It is something richer and deeper than that. And crucially, it is relational. We give and receive joy as we delight in others, and they delight in us. Human beings just seem to be hardwired this way. And the research also shows, sadly, that if there is a joy deficit in someone's life, they will reach for all sorts of joy substitutes. Pseudo-joy can be found in all the diversions, drugs, and delights of contemporary life that truly do not satisfy the human soul. These are often solitary, non-relational attempts at filling that joy deficit. 
And they often leave us wanting more and more because they do not truly satisfy. So when the king in Psalm 149 takes pleasure in the people, it is the king taking joy in the people. It is the king, God the Father, taking joy in the sun as he rises up from the waters of baptism in the river Jordan. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And it is that same son who out of the father's joy comes and seeks out others to bring back into joyful relationship with the father. That's what we've celebrated and lived out this entire journey, this church year. That's why Jesus came. That's why he lived among us, taught and healed, suffered and died, and why the Father in the power of the Spirit raised him again in order to make the triune God's joy complete in you and in me. Jesus in John 15 said it best, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So you see, the call in our psalm to praise the Lord is not coercion, but it's a recollection of the Father's joy in and through the coming Son, King. And it has great transformative power. It is, or it can be, jet fuel for your soul today, too. Do you know truly know how much joy the king takes in you? No matter where you've been, who you are, you are a focal point of God's joy in you. He wants to, you to experience that joy for real, not any of the pretend sources of joy, the joy substitutes that we so typically reach for. And out of that joy then, he does what a king does, a good king does for his people. Out of his joy and delight in them, he rescues them from the things that ensnare them and keep them from joy. You see, as Psalm 149 says, he has founded them as a people, given them this new identity, this name, Israel, and set them free from oppression. In other words, again, the entire story of our church year is caught up in this economy of joy, where out of God's joyful delight in us, he sends his son, and the son's great joy is to set us captives free from sin and death. We are poised here, if you will, on the New Year's Eve of the church year. And in a couple of, you know, few weeks, we'll celebrate the uh, New Year's Eve of the secular calendar, and we oftentimes take that New Year's Eve as a time to reflect back on great moments of the past year, to take stock of where we've been and maybe where we're going. And I think a great thing we can do here, if maybe your joy has run cold, maybe your joy tank is running on empty, reflect back on some of those great moments we as a church have experienced together, where our joy and praise was most powerful and real. I think if we were to list our top five moments, I suspect one of the top ones, maybe number one, will be our celebration of Resurrection Sunday morning. 
which tell the story of our Savior setting us free from the bondage of sin and death filled with great joy. And through that, he's made us join heirs with him to where, indeed, around here, we do erupt in dancing, right? And in great joy. I think that's something really to celebrate, something really to take joy in. So much so that here in the conclusion of this section of the psalm, the psalmist says, let the faithful be joyful with glory. Let them rejoice upon their beds. We understand joy and rejoicing in the fellowship of the body, but what about in your bed? That seems like a kind of strange place to experience joy. But I think what the psalmist has in mind is that at that moment where you lay down at the end of your day, those quiet moments before you fall asleep, aren't they oftentimes moments that are almost like a mirror on your soul? Where whatever the theme of the day behind you was, or whatever the theme of the day coming seems to press in, weigh in upon your soul. Maybe on a Sunday night like tonight, you go to sleep with anxiety about the coming Monday, about anxiety at work, or perhaps around relationships. Maybe it's filled with hope and expectation, even kind of fantasies of what could be in the coming day. But in those quiet moments at the end of day between waking and sleep, I think we often are crowded with the concerns of this life or the pseudo or the pseudo joys that our souls crave. What the psalmist here wants to offer us is instead is the true rest, that real sense of peace and rest in God to where we can go to sleep at night. A heart filled with joy expectant at what the Lord is going to do in the next day and the next. Don't you want that? I know I some nights could really use it. And again, I think the, the key here is simply recall the joy that the king takes in you and the great joy we've experienced together in the body of Christ. That's who we truly are. And in those quiet moments, call upon the Lord and call upon that sense. And you too will experience joy upon your bed. Now, the second feature of this psalm is this, frankly, kind of disturbing call to judgment. It seems to be a call to arms. It's a bit jarring, isn't it? After all of the great joy and celebration, there's then this rousing call in verse 6 to wield a double-edged sword to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. Our psalm starts out with rapturous praise for and joy in our king and his joy in us, but it shifts suddenly to what look, might look like a crusade against the infidels. We, the call here is to bind their kings in chains and their nobles with links of iron. Is that what's going on here? A call to arms? I don't believe it is. But I think you can see, no doubt, how there may have been some believers throughout the ages who would read these verses and see in them a possible justification for their crusade 
or their violence against the perceived or actual enemies of the faith. I don't think that's what's really going on here, that we're being called to arms in quite that sense. In fact, a great interpretive principle is to let Scripture read and interpret Scripture for us and to ask, Lord, what is your Scripture saying to your people here? Because we do get the sense that the coming King, the Lord Jesus, is coming himself in vengeance. But what it says here is we, the people, are to pick up the sword and to execute judgment. How do we make sense of this? I think there are three passages in the New Testament that help us make sense of this double-edged sword and what exactly that means uh, to us. One is found in our epistle reading for today, that reading from 1 Corinthians, where what is portrayed there is the Lord Jesus as the great returning king under whom all things are going to be set in subjection. It is truly an awful day for the enemies of Christ the King when he comes. Because it says in verse 24, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Everything will be in subjection to Christ the King. This is not only the testimony of Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15, but also the book of Revelation. What we see here and the key emphasis is that Christ is the king. He is the one that comes ultimately in glory, wielding that sword in judgment and vengeance upon his enemies. So this call here to take up that sword is first and foremost a call to Christ. Another passage from Paul, a second place, this time in Romans 13, helps to put that double-edged sword also in a greater context for us. Where in Romans 13, Paul says that the Lord God himself has established every rule and authority, has given over to the secular authorities the sword to wield vengeance against evil and unrighteousness. That's a terror, in fact, is the word. So the authority of government to this side of the coming king to execute judgment is the key movement here of the sword, of the real physical sword, you might say. And it's also the standard to which they will be held when the king returns, because he will be the one to judge these powers and principalities, those who have inhabited authority in here in the earth as to how well they have executed justice. But I think there's a final element in the New Testament that help us, helps us understand this two-edged sword and puts it squarely also in our hands. Namely, Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is ultimately our sword, our double-edged sword. It pierces to the heart. It cuts with great conviction to us and all those who hear it. 
And so as the Lord calls us here as joint heirs of his kingdom, having been adopted alongside the king as his sons and daughters, heirs of that kingdom, we are given the sword of God's word to truly judge, to rightly divide truth from falsehood. Paul also puts this again quite memorably in Ephesians chapter 6, where he tells us to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You see, our king does not leave us in this now and not yet without the strength, the ability to fight against the powers and principalities. And Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood per se, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, he says, take up the whole armor of God, including the double-edged sword of his word. You see, that's what it means for us to be vice-regents, queens and kings, princes and princesses, alongside and under the great rule of the king, that we are given here the great sword of God's word, how the spirit himself pierces soul and brings clarity to us of sin and our need for our king. To be prepared for the king and his coming, that's the task of the season ahead of us, I think Psalm 49 is telling us. And that is, interestingly enough, the season that awaits us starting next week, Advent, where the readings you'll see will turn increasingly to judgment, to pictures of divine judgment, the coming of the king, coming with judgment. And what we as the church will be called to do is to search ourselves, our own hearts and lives, to see whether we have any sin or inadequacy in ourselves to discover truly our need for the Christ child coming as our Savior. The scriptures do that. They're sharper than a two-edged sword. And at Advent, we celebrate then the coming of the light into the world, into darkness, sin, and shame, and how Jesus Christ, that Christ child, illuminates every corner of it. John 3 puts this powerfully, that the light has come into the world, but the light has come with judgment. For the world has received it night, it not. And the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. That is what the coming of our king as a child is going to do, is to cast light on us. And what Psalm 49 is asking us to do is examine ourselves, apply the sword there first, and to acknowledge our need for the king. In our praise and our worship, in our hearts and our lives, we can coronate Christ as king today. Our worship here today can be like a little coronation. But we also look forward to the day where Jesus Christ is coronated before all, the grand coronation to come. So in our worship, in our hearts, in our lives, as we come to this table, may our lives, our little coronations, 
participate in and foreshadow that grand coronation to where we, with echoes of the words of Revelation 22, can say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.